He said, but in giving this instruction, it was instruction about head coverings, first part of the chapter. He said, in charging you or directing you with this instruction, I do not praise you. He said, I'm not applauding or commending you because you come together not for the better, not for superior purposes or for something beneficial, but strong contrast. You come together for the worse, inferior purposes, harmful reasons that you're gathering. This was their church service. This wasn't just the body being around once in a while during the week or bumping into each other in the grocery store buying cat food. But it was a church service that they're gathering together, and he says, these are harming you. They're not benefiting you. And he says in verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together, when you're assembling as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Whenever you get stories passed on to you, and Paul was really good at that, he got a lot of stories. You have to kind of season it with salt, as we would say today, whatever that means. You, you have to make it um, understandable. You have to kind of weed through the truth and what's been added on to it, like fish stories and how the fish keep getting bigger and bigger and how they jumped into your boat and how you really had a permit to go fishing and whatever else you may add to the story. But he hears that divisions exist, these schisms these disagreements exist among you. And in part, he said, I'm believing it. For there must also be factions among you. And he's bringing out two strong words here. This idea of divisions is splits. It's contentious verbal interaction between people at church. I remember attending a church one time, and this guy volunteered to be the arms or sergeant of arms at a leadership or a, a congregational meeting. And I kind of looked at him, I go, Sergeant of Arms, what, what do we need that for? He goes, oh, our last church. He said, I had to constantly either push people back down in their chairs or kick them out during our meetings. I'm going, that's sad, that's pathetic. He says, so, so do you need, no, we don't need a Sergeant of Arms at this meeting. And we never did, well, almost never did. But, but as you're looking at this, it's almost what's going on, like you need some people in there, and you need referees that are keeping some people away from each other. Because the next thing that will happen is the factions. These religious sects or divided loyalties. They took up preferences. This was used earlier in 1 Corinthians when one says, I am of Paul. Or another one says, I am of Apollos. And then someone else comes out and says, well, I'm of Jesus Christ. And they were taking sides. And this is what the second word kind of brings out here. Is they were allowing these preferences to physically separate them into cliques. Into groups. Kind of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. Titus, if you remember where Titus is. There's five T's in the New Testament. They're in alphabetical order. Titus is the last of the three books. And in Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says these words. Reject a factious man. Reject the man who creates these divided loyalties after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-contained or self-condemned. This is what was going on in these, church, in these meetings. Your meetings were doing more harm than good. Your relationships were not loving to one another. We're going to look at that in this summer as we go through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. They were not patient. They were not kind. They were not taking in each other's considerations. They were being very selfish. This is what's going on. And so Paul is rebuking them for this, which is often what went on in 1 Corinthians, one rebuke after another. But Paul loves them. You don't write letters. You don't try to help a group of people when you don't care. You just avoid them, kind of with the faction idea. 
Paul loved them very much. But they were doing something that was not only displeasing God, it was harming them. Now, if our church ever gets to that point, I'll get a sergeant of arms. Because we will not tolerate that. You'll get a first warning, then you'll get a second warning, and then you'll be asked to leave. And contrary to popular opinion, I don't think I've ever asked somebody to leave the church. If we've ever had a practice church discipline, they usually left early. They left long before they would let us help them. So you may have rumors, you all have rumors. Like Paul says, I hear that and these things that people say about me. Yes, I am crazy. That one's true. But many other things are not. And so as he's going through here, he's explaining to them, if they have these divisions or these schisms, he said, then you also must have factions among you where you've taken up into these little cliques and you're not having anything to do with each other. The reason he says he knows that and the reason why that is going to happen is in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. What are the approved ones going to be acting like? Are they going to be joining little cliques? No. They're going to be moving from group to group and acting like it's one big body. He's talking to believers here. He's not talking to unbelievers. Those unbelievers come into the church now and then, and if they hear the gospel message or they hear the truth of God's word and they're convicted and they come to Christ, that's what we're after. But, but they're not the church. These believers were struggling in their relationships. And Paul says, true believers who have been approved, and this is the idea, this word dokamazo is tested and judged worthy. They're not living in schisms and factions. It's not what they do. They would never be caught living that way. And so he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you meet together, when you are assembling as a church body, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Don't know how often they were doing this. Uh, they were meeting from day to day. We're going to look at that next week in Acts 2. But how often they were actually taking the Lord's Supper and these meals together, it doesn't give us any kind of reference point. But he says when you um, come together, you're not, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. It's to eat your supper. It's kind of what he's implying there. And for some to not eat supper at all. Because the Lord's Supper was given to everybody. You remember what he did when he established the Lord's Supper? Why did he break the bread? To pass it around. When you come to a pot blessing, as we call them today, is, is it your goal to be first in line because there's only one tray of deviled eggs? <laughs> or have you already gone in there and taken your deviled eggs and hid them somewhere? <laughs> I know. Oh, you ate them already. I see confessions. We have different styles of how we go about this. Or is it our joy to stand over to one side and watch people? Oh, they got one. Oh, oh, Linda got one. I'm really happy about that. She didn't get one last time. What's our attitude? This, that's what love actually does. Well, they were coming together, and they weren't coming to eat the Lord's Supper and to break bread. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. So you get this picture, when we break up the tables, they didn't put them end to end, they separated them. And you had tables of food that people were sitting at eating, and you had other tables with no food. And they were sitting there going hungry. Can you imagine us doing that as a church? I'd rather have a food fight, where at least you're throwing the stuff to somebody. You ever been in a food fight? Oh, in high school, we had great... I didn't participate, I don't want to think I... <laughs> But if you knew what was coming, you could open your mouth and kind of 
pick it off. But food fights, the food is all in the air at the same time because everybody's throwing it all at once. It's, it's actually fun to observe from the corner, but a mess to be in the middle of. And I'd almost rather have that going on to where you're at least sharing the food than to do what they were doing, to be eating and picking out because what you brought, you didn't put in the kitchen and let everybody go through and take a little. You put it on your table that was marked with your name tags, and that, that's where you sat down and ate. And if you were to happen to look around at somebody else, you'd realize they're not eating. But you didn't want to see that because you're being totally selfish. This is what's going on with the Lord's Supper in this beginning time, which is why Paul is having to rebuke them. They needed help. They needed to learn how to share. That's why our series on children, large families, what do you learn? No, get the chicken first. Get the bigger fork that you can reach further. Or sit in the appropriate place. Wherever mom sets the chicken down, that's where you sit. Is that what you learned? No, you learned that sometimes you had to divvy up things and you didn't get as much as you wanted. Because there were too many mouths to feed. And maybe dad was out of work. Or you just had too many mouths to feed. And so you had to take turns and spread out. And you had parents that taught you to appreciate whatever you got. And so here's this struggle going on with some Corinthians who have been taught how to lust after the flesh, after money, after whatever was around them. That's what they'd come out of in the city of Corinth. Very wealthy town. But these people who were hungry, and it carries the idea here to be ravenous, desperately in need of food or longing for that food. We'd call it today that I am famished. At the end of the day, you come in to eat. And they didn't get anything. They've been working all day because these are the poor people. These are the slaves that their master may have let off, and, and they let them go to a meal in the evening. Remember Tychicus when he fell out the window because he was exhausted? And Paul took him up from dead and raised him back. It, it's what they had. So these people would come in, and they had nothing. They, they didn't earn anything. They're working for some master, and here's the meal with the church. And they're, they're not starving. We like to use that word, uh, but they're very hungry. And then he says another is drunk, and when he brings us up, obviously it carries the idea of being intoxicated but they're, uh, with too much wine, but they're basically drowning in drink, while the other one is lacking totally in food. Gluttonous is what we'd call it. Gorging themselves on food and drink when it comes to that picture. So this is what's going on in verse 20, and this is the report that Paul gets. What would you write to that church? Knock it off. When I, get, when I get there, I'm going to straighten. No, he wrote back and said, this needs to stop. And he rebukes him in verse 22 saying, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat? Who is he talking to there? Not the poor. More of an emphasis on the rich who had more than enough in their houses that they could go back to. He says, or do you despise the church of God, the body, the people of God, the believers in this local assembly? Do you despise them? Carrying the idea of scorning them, literally thinking down or looking down on them. Is that the problem? And worse yet, you're not just looking down on them. So now they kind of drop their, their glasses from their food table, and they're looking over and going, why are you even here? I'd feel better if you weren't even in the room. 
to the ones who couldn't eat. So they're despising and scorning them, but then they also shame them. They're humiliating and dishonoring and downright embarrassing them as they take a piece of chicken and they look at them and they go, if you had any sense, if you had any gumption, if you had any ability, you'd have food like I do. You're a lowlife. You don't have the mental acuity to be able to to serve and take care of yourself as you take another bite. And so he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Shall I commend and applaud you? In this, I will not praise you. Paul's actually begging, almost looking for an opportunity to say something good about them. Nothing there when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And so this rebuke is clear and it's strong. And so then he moves on as he explains to them in verse 23, gives them a reminder. Kind of like, let's look back. Let's review what Jesus did for us. And so in verse 23, he says, For I received, this is Paul, receiving instruction by the Lord. As an apostle, Paul was able to receive visions, revelations. He was in a very unique place and wrote almost half of the New Testament because of that. And so in this case, he says, I received from the Lord, who was dead by the time Paul became a believer, that which I also delivered or passed on, transmitted to you. You know this information, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, the night in which he was handed over, delivered up by Judas, this betrayed here is an imperfect. Remember what we stress with imperfects? Was it just a five-minute decision on Judas's part to hand him over? He'd been working on this for days, maybe for weeks, trying to figure out how do I turn him in? How do I make this happen? And they, have, they think, well, maybe all Judas wanted was to force Christ's hand and he would fight off the Romans and, and bring his kingdom, and that's a reason that they try to throw out there. We don't know why Judas did what he did. Because then in turn, he went and killed himself. So something didn't go right. But in this case, he had been handing him over continually in the past. But in, the, in that last night, which it culminated in this handing over by Judas, he said, Jesus took bread. Is that what you'd be doing your last night? Knowing that the guards are going to come get you out of the Garden of Gethsemane? He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he recognized where it came from. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He fragmented this piece of matzah bread that was not, was not fermented, and he passes it out to his disciples, and he says, do this as a command. Be doing this, present tense, in remembrance, in memorial, in commemoration or recollection of what he had done for them. But to do this in remembrance of me. Where is Jesus at that point? He's sitting at the table right in front of them. When he hands on the bread and says, this is my body, isn't that a little strange? He was still sitting there. In spite of consubstantiation, transubstantiation, where Jesus is with the blood or the um, the cup, or the bread and the cup, or he becomes the bread and the cup. Those aren't taught in Scripture, and they aren't taught when he did it the first time. It wasn't literally his body that he's handing out to them. It is a figure or a symbol for them to remember him by. But he commands them 
to do this in remembrance of me. And then remember back in verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also. This is the third of four cups in a meal. And we know by how it's described back in the Gospels. This is the third cup. And he says, um, after, after supper, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Again, commands them to do this. As often as you drink it, no schedule, no locked-in protocol, no, no thing where you have to do it daily or weekly or monthly or whatever. But as often as you do it, uh, as drink it, do it in, or drink it in remembrance of me. Remember me. That's, that's all he shared. Very, very simple. But he says this cup is the new covenant. What word for new there, Friday nighters? New in quality. It's, it's kainos. It's, it's the idea of something that is not new in time. The, the covenant isn't new in time, but he's refreshing the covenant. The, the old covenant is being made new, but he's refreshing what was already there is what he's trying to bring up here. And the covenant, as you look at it here, is simply an agreement, a promise, an obligation, but it's one-sided. This is a covenant that he had set up, and he says here specifically, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There is no payment for sin without the shedding of blood. Our blood is tainted. Our blood is sinful. Our blood cannot pay its own debt. The debt is too great. So God himself took on human flesh, became man, and laid down his life, shed his blood to pay our debt. More than sufficient for any and all who would believe. So he's reminding them back in the day, as you look back in, into Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the different aspects that are brought out there, that this is what Christ initially did. It was totally selfless. So he's telling them as he goes through these three verses, 23, 24, 25, remember my selflessness. Why, why point that out? It's done deal. He died. What are they trying to remember here? As they look back, he's commanding them to remember what he did and, in essence, go do likewise. That's what this covenant does. It changes us. The, the old man is crucified. The, the flesh, the body that you lived in, you're still in. But the soulish part of you, your mind, your will, and your emotions, as an unbeliever, has died with Christ. You've been made new into a new creature in Christ Jesus. It changes everything about our lives. And everything about what we do with our lives. And then reminds him in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's like a sermon. As you remember his sacrifice, the word proclaim here is you're declaring publicly. You, you're eating and drinking with this display. And then the declaration you're making is announcing publicly what Christ has done for me, looking back in remembrance of his death and proclaiming to others that he's coming back, which also then implies he resurrected. He ascended. He's going to return. The world is beginning to mock that idea. When I am tempted to sin, and where I'm at in my life at this point, this is what comes into my mind if the Holy Spirit tries to help me. Don't do that. That's not who you are anymore. That, that is a displeasure to God. It's not pleasing to God, and it's harmful to you. Don't go there. And so the only way you can do that is you have to know the Scriptures well enough to know what God wants you to do and what He doesn't want you to do. 
And so the little phrase, read your Bibles, comes to mind. You're reading it more than you ever have, aren't you? I suggest, I'll give you an idea, hang a card in front of your TV. We knew um, friends probably about 30 years ago. And when we walked into their house, they just started coming to the church, and then he got transferred, so they weren't here very long. But she had a card in front of her TV. And it said, do you remember what it said exactly? It was something to the effect, you don't remember it at all? Okay. Um, I have more memory than my wife. That's amazing. But, but it was something to the idea to examine yourself and to make sure there's nothing coming into your eyes that God doesn't want coming in. I have a better idea with that. Why don't you dangle your Bible? Why don't you put a little um, Bible holder in front of your TV? It, it can move. When the weight of the Bible isn't on it, it automatically lifts up. But when you walk in and you put the, do the clicker, the Bible's in the way. And I don't want you just to have a guide and direct what you're doing. I want you to say, oh, yeah, God and I haven't talked yet. Remember that little booklet over there on the rack called My Heart, Christ's Home? Very convicting. I get up early on Sunday mornings, and I, I walk into my office, and it's like I panic because I've got to preach again. And, and this old man is struggling with all of my, I'm allowed to still use that phrase. But, but the first thing God always reminds me is, let's spend time together. So I open one eye, get a drink of water, whatever it takes, turn all the lights on. But we go read. And it's amazing what God does with that. Dave shares verses with me regularly. Um, and regular can be once a week or once a month, but whatever it is, it's Dave sharing scripture, Dave O'Connor. It, it always is a strong help to me. I appreciate that. Verses that maybe you haven't looked at for a while. But the focus here on the Lord's Supper, the focus of our lives is the Lord. It's to put him first. It's to let him take away everything. And there's Sundays when God says, okay, you gave me five minutes, I'm going to take care of your sermon for you. Contrary to the last few weeks. Too many drugs. I feel like I feel a lot better today. But I'm learning and growing and depending, and this is what he's trying to do. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're making a public proclamation, a public announcement of the Lord's death until he comes. You're telling everybody around you who he is, what he did, and how you are related to him. And we're going to approach that in just a few minutes. Therefore, in verse 27... As he moves on to the third section, based on the rebuke, based on the reminder, he makes it very clear, therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I could go off in many directions to help explain this to you. This is one of the hang-ups people are having today with the Lord's Supper. Let me illustrate it with another one. You're told today, when you come into a building, you shall not wear a hat. Is that biblical or traditional? Cultural, okay, would work in there as well. Now, if you're in the military, you have like two or three seconds to get it off your head from the time you're entering the doorway, not even that, okay? But I mean, outside of you getting it off and entering into the building without a hat on, that's cultural. The Bible does not teach that. Don't disobey your commanding officer. Take it off. If you know you're coming into a room and there's people that are going to be offended because you're, you're wearing a hat, don't wear it in there. 
If somebody comes up to you, which has happened here before, and tells you that that hat is very inappropriate, that it dishonors God, take it off. Don't stay in your ground and say, oh, I have a right to wear this hat. You're, you're going back and forth between the biblical and the cultural. I don't need to offend somebody just because I know I can. I don't need to eat meat offered to idols because I can. I let it go. But when I go to Scripture and I go back in the Old Testament, what did the priest wear when he went in to make the sacrifice? A hat. They wore a turban. I've just been reading through Exodus recently. Why would God tell the priests in his very presence to wear a turban, to cover their heads with something if it violates the principles that God has set up? Because 1 Corinthians 11 is not about hats. And I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to go too far. It's about hair. And you need to go back and figure that out. Even nature itself teaches you that God gave different hair to men and women. Nowadays, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get cards and letters over that. It's not that men can't grow long hair. But they're few and far between. Look at me. I could do a bozo, but I, I can't get it on top. I could do a flat top. That works really good. But, but it's what God says in his word in 1 Corinthians 11, right before this passage, is he's trying to help them understand some things. But he says here, what does it mean then to eat and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner? It literally is an adverb. It, it is describing the eating and the drinking. Oh, that helped a lot, didn't it? all of us English scholars. It's not literally an unworthy manner, but unworthily, inadequately, or in an improper manner, inappropriately. You're eating inappropriately. You're drinking inappropriately. How were they doing that in that church? By pigging out at one table and neglecting the hungry at another table. That's what he's talking about. We got all hung up, and I've had people come to me over the years saying, um, I can't take the Lord's Supper today, when they were honest with me. And I said, well, why not? I said, well, I just have some sin in my life. Well, you can take care of that in about five seconds. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now what's the problem? Well, it doesn't quite work that way. I just don't feel right. Let me see what my Bible says about feeling the Lord's Supper. No, nope, that's not in there. Why am I doing this? See, what we've done with the Lord's Supper, we've made it all about ourselves. Just like the first century church did. They made it about themselves when they ate and drank to the point of being drunk while others went hungry. It wasn't the Lord's Supper. It was my supper that my wife made, and I brought it, and I'm going to eat it. Kind of like little TV dinners. Just for me. And so what he's trying to bring out here, and he explains it in the end, and we'll get to that eventually. He's trying to tell them, if you are treating one another like that, you are taking the Lord's Supper improperly, inappropriately, unworthily, in an improper manner. And if you do that, in verse 27, you shall be guilty. You are going to be held in, literally, is what it's talking about, liable, like they're going to put a restriction on you, as an offender against the body and the blood of the Lord. And you kind of look at that and you go, ah, this, is that new to you or, is, or does that make it kind of strange? This is what he's talking about. Why did I die? 
What is my goal in your lives? What does he get into when he gets to chapter 13 when he starts telling them about loving one another? That's what it's about. Many people think it's some individual sin in my life that I could take care of really quickly. That's not what the problem is with the Lord's Supper. It's about interpersonal relationships in the body of Christ is what he's getting at. How can you say you know me and then go treat your fellow brother or sister that way? That's not making any sense. You're not doing this in remembrance of me. You're doing it selfishly for you. This is what he's really trying to bring out. You are going to be held guilty. Guilty to who? To God. What does God do with his own children? Disciplines them. He spanks them. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you've been spanked before. Because all of you have, if you're a believer. That's what Hebrews 12 says. What child does he have that he hadn't spanked? An Ebner paraphrase. And so he's trying to explain some things to them. He says, here's what you need to do instead. As you struggle with this whole issue, first off, it's self-discipline. You, you don't do it in an unworthy manner to use the text, or unworthily or inappropriately. You don't violate the very purpose for why Christ died. You wait for one another. You eat at home if you're that hungry. But when you bring food, you share it. Because if you don't, you're going to be held responsible, answerable to God. You're going to get that divine spanking. So in verse 28, he says this, but let a man examine himself. Again, put himself to the test. And this word dokamazo is the idea that this, and I, this illustration I use often is you found a nugget out in the, in the rocks in an appropriate place where you expect to find gold. And you looked at it and everything tells you it's real gold. But you're going to take it and go to the effort of going into an assayer, having them check it out, paying them a fee, maybe even having them melt it out of the rock, whatever you're going to have them do, and they're going to come back to you and say, that's gold, that's real gold, we'll put our stamp on it. You want to sell it to us? That's what Takamaso means. You're going to examine yourself with the idea that you're expecting the real deal. Not because you're expecting to see something out of whack. Check yourself out, and then he, that's a um, command there, and then the second command, and then let him eat of the bread. He doesn't say put it off. He doesn't say wait till next month to take communion. Fix the problem. And what you could do even right here, if there was some issue between you and somebody else, is literally get up, ask them if you could talk to them for a minute, and take them outside. <gasps> That'd be embarrassing. Embarrassing to who? Not to God. Probably not as much to the person you're tapping on the back. You're not asking them to humble themselves. You're going to them and you're telling them you were wrong. We've seen people do that. That's the only way I know for sure when somebody really comes to Christ is when I see that change, that forgiveness, that humility, that genuine love that's one-sided. You know, people want marriage, and we didn't get into marriage. We just talked a lot about the children. But they want it to be a 50-50 deal. There's no such thing as 50-50 in marriage. 50-50 marriages end up in divorce because you just divided it by making it 50-50. It's 100%, 100%. I don't wait for my wife to do all the right things. And then I get to respond back. I go in, and we were joking around. 
because of her uh, shoulder that some of you know about. She's sleeping on the couch now. But she never promised to not sleep on the couch. I did. But you have this 100%. I lay down my life for her. She lays down her life for me. And that's how it works in marriage. If you haven't figured that out yet, that's why you're having a lot of problems that are unnecessary. I'll probably butcher it, but this little uh, story about this lady, old lady that a young girl came to and said, oh, I'm having so many problems in my marriage. Every time I turn around, he's doing something wrong. And she said, well, I just made a list. The old lady said, I made a list. Whenever he did something that really, really bothered me, I put it on the list. Oh, that's a good idea. Then I can use it against him. No, she goes, the list was things that I wasn't going to complain or get frustrated about. What? Yeah, um, she, she just messy. She burned the toast all the time. Let me pick on something that none of you ever do. And, and so she burned the toast all the time. I put it on the list. Every time she, um, she burned the toast, or I know I got it backwards here, but she goes, every time my husband, what, what's the husband do wrong? Oh, you all answer too quickly. What did he do? Oh, it leaves this stuff all over the house. Every time he left his clothes laying around, I, I reminded myself, that's on the list. I went around picking them up. And did the laundry. Gone. Didn't bring it up again. You go, wait a minute, that's not training your husband. You're not his mother. Your role is not to train your husband. Your role is to submit. <gasps> oh, that, that nasty word. And his role is to Submit. Which is what love really is when a husband loves his wife. And see, I could get off into that, and you're going to get me way sidetracked. But, but the idea here is, he says, you're checking yourself out, and then you're eating of the bread and the cup because, it, uh, because it's right. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment. Or this, God will pass sentence on you to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And he puts a preposition on the front, but it's not, it's not critical here. So bringing out the idea, if he doesn't judge through the situation, God will judge him. And he doesn't mean, it's, it's the same kind of judgment a father has toward a child. You recognize you're doing something wrong, and you do the, take the appropriate measures to deal with it. That's what God will do. God doesn't go, oh, I've had a busy day. I don't feel like dealing with this again. He never gets tired. He is always there consistently dealing with our issues, whatever they may be when we get out of line. So he's, he'll judge us in, in a good sense. It's just crema here. But if we do not judge rightly our bodies, the body, specific, not our bodies, but the body of Christ. Verse 30, for this reason, many, notice that, not a few or a couple of you, but many, a significant quantity or even a great number would fit in with this word. Among you are... Weak and sick and a number sleep. Kind of an interesting layout here of what he's describing. What had God already been doing to the Corinthian church? Disciplining them, chastising them, whatever you want to, word you want to use. His first step that he does when he moved in here is to cause them to be laid back. And I don't mean in a lazy way, but without energy or strength to be feeble. He, he's slowing them down. If you're not going to use your energy for me, God says, well, then I'm going to step in and get your attention. This doesn't mean you get to go sit in a rocking chair. This will be times in our lives when we say, this makes no sense. It's not about drugs, not about cancer, not about something that you know has directly happened or you, you worked yourself to death last Saturday because you had to get everything done in one day and you worked 15 hours. And I can't figure out why my fingers won't open. You ever been there with a rake or a shovel? 
That's, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something happening in your life that you cannot explain. You do not understand why you have no energy. So you have to sort this out. But if the first question you ask is, how am I doing in relation to the body of Christ? It may answer that. Is there something out of whack? And God's trying to get my attention. So he's slowing me down. This is what I mean by laid back. The second one is sick. This is the idea of being laid up. Limited function, infirm, in, invalid. You, you have serious issues of really being sick. And we all go, oh, remember in, in the Gospels, they said, why is this man sick? Did his parents sin or did he sin? Did something, did he, no, he's sick for the glory of God. Well, this is kind of along that line where you alone can be the judge to figure out why am I laid up? Why am I struggling physically? Why am I getting COVID over and over and over and over again? You're messing up the statistics. You're making them think things that aren't real. You don't really have COVID. You have a discipline problem. God's trying to get your attention. Do we really look at that? You see, I don't have to be able to figure out and look at somebody and go, I know why you're sick. That isn't what this is for. And when we come to church, what do we tell everybody when they ask, how are we doing? Fine. You're never sick at church, right? You, you would never admit it. This is when you don't come to church. This is being laid up, sick enough that you are at home and you're trying to sort things out. And God's trying to get your attention. But worse yet, if you don't listen to the laid back or the laid up, then there's a third step that God took some to here, and it's laid to rest. To be asleep, as he describes it here, a number of sleep, is a term that describes believers who have died in Christ, used many places by Paul. So I know when you're dead. I can figure that one out. But it's a little harder to figure out this area of weakness and sickness where God is trying to get our attention and spanking us for what we're doing wrong. He said, many among you. How's Paul know that? Because he's an apostle. This may have been information that God directly shared with him. Paul's not even there. He's writing a letter from a distance. But he knows what's going on in this church. The Corinthian church was wild out of whack in many respects, brought a lot of their cultural issues into the church. And so as he looks at this situation, he says to them, verse 31, but if, second-class condition, not a common one, but if we judge ourselves, which you are not doing, that's that's what a second-class condition is trying to say here. If we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. That's what's missing. That's why many of you are weak and sick and sleep. But when we are judged, when God comes along with his chastisement, with his discipline, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we might not be condemned along with the world. You're not some wild child that's out there doing your own thing. God says, you're my child. And my children don't get away with that. I deal with them, I correct them, I bring them along. God's not worried about you dying in Christ. That's not the problem. We're all going to die in Christ, apart from the rapture. The problem is you're dying early. A lot of people think, well, God has appointed my day. I can't die early. You can die early. I can show you many examples in the New Testament when people died before their appointed day. Just because you have an appointed day doesn't mean you can't do something to speed it up. Suicide is always that case. 
but so are many other situations where people do risky, dangerous things. And you can't put the Lord your God to the test without having consequences from that. And so as you come in here, the struggle they're having, he says, this unfulfilled judgment on your part is forcing God to judge you. But verse 32, but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord. So then, as he wraps us up, he goes from the self-discipline in verse 27. You need to take control of this. You need to recognize your guilt. You need to confess it. You need to get right with the body member that you're struggling with, or a number of them. You make the self-examination in 28 to 32. Discern and discipline. Accept that discipline from God. And verse 33, here comes the self-control. So then, my brethren, here's what he's answering as he went back earlier. Here's the solution to this um, problem they're having. He says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, when you're assembling and for these meals, wait for one another. What does that imply was happening? Have you seen anybody go in the kitchen while I've been preaching? Hmm? Probably not. Some try to get in there to help fix the food. I tried to correct that over the years and kept telling them, this food is more important than that food. Bring it in a way that, which is why we have a lot of crock pots and stuff in the oven, but bring it in a way that it's ready to eat when it's time. But don't spend the sermon hour in there making food. That's my fault. Blame me. Wait for one another. Tarry. And literally, this, the idea of this word carries the idea to expect. He's, he's kind of saying, expect the poor to join you. Be patient to share with them. And who is it he's talking about here? Wait for one another if anyone is hungry. So you're waiting for those who don't have because you do have. But if you are hungry... What's he tell him to do in verse 34? Let him eat at home. That's a command. You eat at home. Don't come to church starving. You need food? Let me know. If you're working and you aren't appropriately being recompensed or, or have uh, funds or your house burnt down, you'd be shocked at what this church will do for you. But eat at home. The reason for that is so you do not come together for judgment. God was stepping into their assembly, and there was people that were struggling greatly because of what they were doing. It wasn't a happy place. You couldn't call this a happy meal. It was sad. The remaining matters I shall arrange when I come. There are other issues that Paul wasn't going to get to about, maybe related to some of that, but, but here he is getting to. And the whole point, in case you're not catching it, is the, the waiting on the Lord's Supper is because you have a problem with another believer. And you need to fix it. You need to humble yourself. It doesn't mean go beat them with a stick until they confess whatever they've done wrong. Let it go. Pick up their clothes. Eat their burnt toast. Love them where they're at. In case you haven't figured that out, go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how Jesus Christ, God Almighty, perfectly holy, sinless, how he lived amongst the disciples. He loved them. You're not excusing sin. That is not what I'm trying to, to tell you. Just let it go. But it's not your responsibility first. 
The first responsibility, Galatians 6, is you who are spiritual resort such a one who has a problem. You can read Galatians 6, 1 to 5. You start off with you. You can't help them until you're right with God, until you get this thing settled. So you go get it settled, and you don't walk up to them and tell them, well, you've done 10 things this week that have just drove me nuts. That's not what I'm talking about. You go up to them and you say, I've had a bad attitude, and it's all my fault. Because Jesus would have never had this attitude, no matter what was going on around him. Judas is stealing from the money box on a regular basis. Why do you get put in charge of it? Probably the same way that many treasurers get put in charge of money in churches. I've been in enough churches to see some funny things and find out when one church that the person in charge of the money wasn't even a believer. It took a while to come out. Judas was the only one, because of where he was from, they think was probably from a wealthy background. Well, who would you put in charge of the money? Somebody that was used to handling Money. I don't know how they set it up, but Jesus knew what he was doing all along. What did he do about it? Nothing that we see in Scripture. But that little comment gets put in there that they knew he was pilfering from the money box. See, we want to justify clobbering people and act like we are holier than thou, and instead it's the other way around when it comes to the Lord's Supper. What I realize is that I clobbered Jesus. My sin put him there. If somebody wants to go in there and let them know, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we are going to move into a time of communion, and it would be helpful for Brian to be out here since he's going to lead it. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for the simplicity of your word. Thank you for your love for us, where you overlook so many things every day in our lives. But you don't overlook things that are dangerous to us or out-and-out sin. We are imperfect. We are slow. We neglect reading your word. We don't give you a lot of time. We don't pray for cats out of heaven, let alone for little things. Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to humble ourselves before you and know that then you can exalt us. And then you can make the church be even more what it's supposed to be. So thank you for the reminder and for this time. In Jesus' name I pray.